study of his word. I'm not putting a model airplane together up here because life is complicated at the moment. Okay, John chapter 17, verses 1 through 5. Jesus spoke these words, lifted up his eyes to heaven, and he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son also may glorify you. As you have given him authority over all flesh, that he should give Everlasting life to as many as you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they may know you and the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I've glorified you on the earth. I've finished the work which you have given me to do. And now, O Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for every word of our Savior. We thank you for every thought and every intent of heart that is behind all that he has said. We want, Lord, not only to have to understand it in our minds, but we want it to impact, Lord, the totality of our lives. And so we just acknowledge that this book is your book. Inspired by the Holy Spirit, we acknowledge that he is the teacher is present right now. And we pray, Lord, that you would bring us to a greater understanding of our Savior this morning as we study his words. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Jesus is with his disciples in the city of Jerusalem, on the night before his crucifixion. And he has just finished preparing them for his coming, death upon the cross, his burial, his resurrection on the third day, and his ascension into heaven by giving them a very lengthy teaching, a teaching uh, that is known as the Upper Room Discourse, which began in John's Gospel, chapter 13, and went all the way through John, chapter 16. He then followed that really glorious teaching with prayer, a prayer that he directed to God the Father. I put myself, as I always do, and I, I, I have had to kind of learn in the last two or three years as I'm kind of putting together notes for a study and all. I, I put almost, almost always I put it in the present tense. Um, I, I put myself right in the scene. And so Jesus prays and the disciples uh, were doing this. And it's like I'm right there. And I've had to learn to put it in the past tense just for some kind of accuracy. But I always put myself on the scene. But I think to myself, there I am with Jesus on that night with the disciples to imagine he has just poured out his heart and all of this teaching. And Of course, before we're going to die, we 
say the things that are not only the most important to us, but the most things that we know are the most important to speak to those that we love the most in life. And then as you're sitting there and you think it just simply can't get any better than what you've just heard and what you've just witnessed, he takes and he lifts his eyes up into heaven and he begins to pray out loud. There isn't a lot of record in the scriptures of him praying out loud before the disciples. He would wake up early in the morning. He would go off to commune with the Father. But here now, and it must have been just arresting for them to realize that he is now praying to the Father. He's praying out loud. And we have the privilege of listening to what it is that he wants to say to the Father in light of the hour and in light of what we're facing and the things that he has just uh, spoken to us. I think one of the greatest ways that a you can come to know another person, and certainly one of the quickest ways in terms of what's really in their core, what's in, in the deep streams of their life, is to pray with someone. And when we pray, it very often, it's not just that a prayer's being offered up, but it's also a revelation of the person doing the praying. What's most important to them in life? What are the highest priorities to them in life? What are they most concerned about at the moment and in life in general? So here we are in sitting in this place 2,000 years later. The, scripture, the Holy Spirit's allowed it to be so for us today. And we get a chance not only to hear Jesus' prayer to the Father, but to learn about Him as a result. Now, a guy by the name of Warren Wiersbe, very famous Bible teacher. He's a little elderly now, and uh, sometimes you, tr you try and call him and, and uh, get him to see if he'd come out and speak at a conference or something. And he says, my parents won't let me. He said, Father Time and Mother Nature won't let me out any longer. But he, if you ever are in the bookstore or any bookstore and you see a resource by Warren Wearsby, uh, you know that you can pick it up and not only will it be extraordinarily safe, but very, very edifying and very enriching. And he wrote a book on Jesus's prayer in John chapter 17, and he entitled it just perfect. He entitled it, Listen, Jesus is Praying, because the prayer reveals so much to us about our Savior. And so the prayer really includes three things. He prays for himself in the first five verses of John 17. Then in verses 6 through 19, he prays for the disciples. We'll look at that at another time. And then in verses 20 through 26, he prays for everyone that's going to become his disciples all the way down through the ages. That's a very special part of the prayer because uh, he's praying for us in this very room that we're sitting in here today as we've come to know the Lord. Now, I do think that um, one of the wonderful things, again, about this prayer is what it reveals to us about the Lord. And so as we examine this part of the prayer, as Jesus prays for himself, our desires to know more about his heart, his mind, his priorities, his perspectives. Now, very significantly in verse 1, he declared that his hour had come. 
Now, some of you might have been frustrated with me as we've gone through this series of looking at Jesus's life in chronological order, because you might have recognized that time and again in John's gospel, I didn't elaborate on a phrase that's repeated continually through uh, through the book. And that is the phrase is and his time was not yet come. His time was not had not yet come. He, his time had not yet come, or sometimes it was phrased, um, his time was not yet, his time was not at hand. So this phrase is repeated over and over again, and now Jesus, and what had to definitely get the disciples' attention, he declared, Father, the hour has come. What hour is Jesus referring to? He's referring to the cross. The hour had come for him to die on the cross of Calvary, in order to be the propitiation for our sins. When you hear me talk about, when I give a gospel presentation, and you hear me talk about Jesus being the full and satisfying payment for our sins, that's the word propitiation. That's what it means. That He and He alone is the full and satisfying payment for our sins. And so this this hour that had come now refers to the cross, his death upon the cross at Calvary for the forgiveness of our sins. And this hour refers not only to the cross, but also to his burial, his resurrection from the dead on the third day, and also his ascension ultimately into the heaven that he had come from. John chapter 13, verse 1. As all of this began, we're told that before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come, that he should depart from this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. And so this phrase used over and over again. At the very beginning of Jesus' public ministry, at the wedding of Cana, when his mother came to him and informed him that they had run out of wine, which was kind of a catastrophe for a a wedding in the ancient day. Jesus spoke to her and said, Woman, what does your concern have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. He didn't come into the world supremely to be a miracle worker, someone who's kind of handy at weddings uh, or any kind of situation. He came into the world to lay his life down in order to provide this world with the only unshakable good news that's in the world, and that is that God loves us and he desires to save each and every one of us, bring us into a relationship with him, and ultimately for that relationship to be continued in heaven forever and ever and ever. Then in John chapter 8, As Jesus publicly prophesied and he declared himself to be the light of the world, he spoke those words in the treasury. And as he taught them, there were religious leaders that wanted to lay hands on him and arrest him. But they didn't because we're told for his hour had not yet come. Again, he didn't come into the world supremely to be a great prophet, but again, to be the savior of the world. And then now and. And uh, there was a time in his ministry when he was teaching in Jerusalem at the temple there during the Feast of Tabernacles. And again, the religious leaders sought to take him out in John chapter 8. And uh, they sought to arrest him and no one laid hands on him because his hour had not yet come. Again, he didn't come into the world supremely to be a great teacher. 
but to die on that cross for our sins. And yet now, Jesus says, his hour has come. Not in man's timing, but in God's timing. In other words, the disciples needed to know what heaven knew and that for all of the horror, and this that the greatest sin against God was ever committed, the greatest disgrace in human history was going to unfold the next day. The greatest and worst revelation of the wickedness of man's heart that we would, Jew and Gentile alike, crucify perfection, the very Son of God. And Jesus wanted the disciples to know what heaven knew, and that is, for all that was going to unfold the next day, nothing was out of control. Everything was moving according to God's plan and according to God's timing. I would ask some of us this morning, just would you stop for a moment and just remind yourself, in the middle of whatever situation you're in, whatever it is that you're facing, and remind yourself that the God that you love and the God that loves you is in complete control of your life. Nothing is out of control. If God could take this whole circumstance surrounding the greatest event, series of events in human history, the death, the burial, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and work that together for good and to make it serve His purposes and absolutely dominate it, how much more of our single life? He is in control and He is doing things Absolutely according to his good and perfect and acceptable will. Now, this prayer reveals to us his attitude toward the cross. And it might be interesting to realize that he viewed the cross as a a glorious event, a glorifying event, that it glorified, verse 1, the Father. When Jesus asked the Father to glorify him so that he in turn might glorify the Father. What was Jesus asking for? Well, we have insight from several other passages. In John chapter 7, Jesus stood up on a great day of one of the Jewish feasts. And if he said it, he said, if any man thirsts, let him come unto me. And out of his innermost being will flow torrents or rivers of living water. And we're told there that this he spoke concerning the Spirit, whom those believing in him would receive, for the Holy Spirit was not yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified. The Holy Spirit couldn't be given until Jesus was glorified. And the Holy Spirit was given on the day of Pentecost after Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. In John chapter 12, Jesus answered, And said, the hour has come that the Son of Man must be glorified. And in the light of speaking about his being glorified, he went on to say, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it produces much grain. And he who loves his life will lose it. And he who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. 
If anyone serves me, let him follow me. And where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, him my father will honor. And now my soul is troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. And then a voice came from heaven saying, I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. So here again, Jesus talks about being glorified and glorifying the Father in the context of his death and his burial and his resurrection. So when Jesus asked to be glorified, he was asking for that progression to begin. His dying on the cross, his being buried, his being raised again on the third day. And then many days later to then ascend into heaven. He was asking for that whole sequence of events to start. So how is the Father glorified through Jesus' death and his burial and his resurrection and his ascension? Those events glorified the Father's holiness, His righteousness, and His wisdom. In the words of the Apostle Paul, it was Jesus' death upon the cross alone that allows God to remain just while at the same time justifying sinful man. It's one of my favorite verses in the whole Bible. If you've been here longer than three weeks, you know that. Romans chapter 3. Paul wrote, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God sent forth to be a propitiation by his blood through faith to demonstrate his righteousness, because in his forbearance God had passed over the sins that were previously committed, to demonstrate at the present time his righteousness. That's what the cross was about, that he may be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. As much as God loved and loves sinful man, as much as he longs to have a personal relationship with us, as much as he wants us to one day be with him in the glory of heaven, he could not Ignore the seriousness of our sins and the very real consequence of our sin. He would be unrighteous if he did not consider our sin to be a significant thing, to be a very, very serious thing. He, and so the solution to the dilemma that he faced, I want to save Unrighteous man, but I must remain holy and just in doing so. That was a very difficult place for God to find himself in, if we can speak of difficulty in the context of God. It was a significant thing that he had to address on our behalf. And how was he able to do it? What was the solution to the dilemma? There is only one solution in all of human history. He was able to do it through Jesus' death upon the cross at Calvary. 
Because it is there that he provided a way for Jesus' righteousness, his perfection to be put to our account, giving us the perfect righteousness that heaven requires. And yet, at the same time, not ignore the seriousness of our sin. Nobody can look at that cross. Nobody can look at the Savior on that cross, covered in his own blood, crowned with a a crown of thorns covered with the spit of man, the nails through hands and feet. No one can look at the cross of Calvary and ever say that God is soft on sin or that sin is insignificant or sin isn't a big deal. And so he, in, in providing salvation in the way that he has done it, He has done it in a way that causes us to realize we can be saved, but sin is a huge issue that God has taken care of for us. It is only by providing mankind with salvation through Jesus' death on the cross that allows God to remain just and still be the justifier of sinful man. Nothing else matches that. No other religion in the world allows God to be both just and the justifier of sinful man. No philosophy, no kind of thought or belief system. Always those things force God to be one or the other. He remains just and He cannot save us. Or He saves us, but He ceases to be just. Neither scenario does us any good. It is only Christ that allows that to happen and allows us to be saved. Because on that cross, the penalty of our sin was not casually dismissed. But Jesus bore our sin and he paid the penalty that it required. The old saying is that salvation is free for us. As Christians, free from mankind to receive and become a Christian. But it isn't cheap. It's free because Jesus did all the heavy lifting. Jesus paid the price. Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. Paul put it this way. For he, that is the Father, made him Jesus, who knew no sin, to become sin that we might become the righteousness of God in Him, be acceptable for the glory of heaven. It is the cross of Jesus that glorifies the holiness of God. It glorifies the wisdom of God. It glorifies the righteousness of God. And I love those things being glorified in my God because I'm so glad that he is all of those things. But it also glorified or made known the Father's love and his grace. God is glorified in the cross, the Father is, because it demonstrates his love for us. First John chapter 4, verse 10. Here in his love, not that we loved God, but that God loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Book of Romans, chapter 5, verses 7 and 8. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die. 
Yet perhaps for a good man, someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Christ died for the ungodly. The cross is also a demonstration of the love of God and it glorifies him not only as a wise God and as a righteous God and as a holy God, but also as a loving God. And Jesus faces all of the pain, all of the humiliation of the cross, and to him it is worth it because it reveals the love of God to us, the love of God to mankind in a way that nothing else could. That's what the cross has allowed us to to do. It allows us to see and recognize how much God loves us. Every time we think of the cross... Yes, we think of our sin, we think of God's forgiveness, but perhaps supremely we ought to think about, always be reminded of the greatness of his love for us. You wonder about God's love for you this morning. Even as a sinner, he loves you and wants you saved today. As a Christian, sometimes Christians live long periods of their life doubting the love of God. Yet here is this great moment in human history Jesus on that cross intended to dispel any doubt related to his love for us and any of our hearts. Let's be confident in his love this morning. This glorifying of the Father through the cross, it also glorified his power because Jesus' history isn't going to end with death but with resurrection. It would, he would be raised from the dead on the third day. And so God the Father was glorified in Jesus' life, in his teaching, in his miracles, all those things. It was wonderful, but he was never so fully and wonderfully revealed. In all of his holiness and his righteousness and his grace and in his love and in his power than in this hour in Jesus' life and in his ministry. And we're witnesses of it today. Before Jesus' crucifixion, the cross in human history was a symbol of shame. It was a shame for a person to be crucified in ancient Rome. In the ancient world, you, you, you wouldn't wear a cross. You wouldn't put one up in a building. It was a symbol of great, great shame. And yet the wisdom and the power and the holiness and the grace and the love of God through Christ dying on that cross has taken that symbol from a symbol of shame and disgrace associated with sinners and criminals and has so completely overwhelmed it that now it's a symbol of God's grace and the symbol of the greatness of His love for mankind. Notice in verses 2 and 3 that Jesus' prayer reveals God's amazing concern for our souls, for our salvation. One of the interesting things that happens when we become Christians so often is to realize that while we had no concern for our souls, we had no concern for our eternities for months and years and decades for many of us. He never stopped having a concern for our souls 
and for our everlasting life. If you sit here today and you're not a Christian, God has a concern for your eternity, has a concern for your soul. Even if you don't have a concern for it yet, He has a concern for it today. You notice that everlasting life, eternal life, Jesus said, is found in knowing God, God the Father, and in knowing Jesus. He declares it in verse 3. Salvation is found not in knowing supremely about God, but in knowing Him personally, having a relationship with Him. The word know in, in that uh, verse there, it's the Greek word gnosko, which means a knowledge that comes by experience. There's other Greek, another Greek word that uh, Oedis that speaks of intuitive knowledge. That's not the word that's used here. It speaks of a knowledge that comes by experience. Eternal life is found in having a very real experiential personal relationship with God. That's what Christianity is all about. More than having just a ton of religious information in my mind, in my head, that religious information doesn't do me any good until I've been born again and begin that personal relationship. There are lots of people that are in the world today, and even in religious systems, that profess themselves to be Christian and they know nothing about a personal relationship with God. They've been through religious classes all of their childhood and formative years. They've continued to attend church into adult life. And yet they have never been told that this is all about a daily personal, you personally relationship with God. So this eternal life is more than just this intellectual assent to the existence of God, or even that Jesus is the Son of God. You realize that in Jesus' public ministry, the demons seem to have a greater understanding half the time than, than his disciples did of him. They are continually declaring him to be the Son of God. They're continually professing him to be the promised Messiah. They were very, the, the, the devil is, ve, the demons are very orthodox in their intellectual understanding of who and what Jesus is. There's not going to be a single uh, devil in, in heaven. It's not enough to get us into heaven. You realize there's not a single demon that is an atheist, not a single demon is a, an agnostic. They don't uh, go down to Starbucks and have coffee and talk about whether God exists or whether Jesus is the Son of God or whether He's the promised Messiah. There's no wondering about it. They know all of those things to be true, and yet there is a, they're not saved. That's why James wrote, and he said, you believe that there's one God. That's great. You believe in the existence of God. That's a great starting point. You do well. But you've got to realize, even the demons believe that much, and they tremble. It takes more than that to be saved. It is possible to believe in the existence of God, that Jesus is the Son of God, believe that the Bible is the Word of God, and still not have a personal relationship with God. One of my favorite things you think about the Apostle Paul and that thing, before he became the Apostle Paul, Saul of Tarsus, you could take 
everything I would venture to guess. All of our cumulative knowledge about God and the Scriptures, put it all together in a ball, and probably Paul possessed in his own noggin more than all that we could put together. Very religious man. Knew a ton about God. Knew the Old Testament inside and out. I mean, tremendous uh, religious knowledge. And yet he writes at the end of his life, he said, For this reason I also suffer these things. Nevertheless, I am not ashamed for this reason. For he said, I know whom I have believed. Not what, supremely. I know whom I have believed. And I'm persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed unto him against that day. It was the relationship that meant everything to the Apostle Paul. Because that's what Christianity is all about. Nothing compares to knowing God personally. And how does that happen? How does a person come to know God in that way to establish a relationship with him? By confessing that I'm a sinner. And that my sin has separated me from that relationship with God. But then believing that God loved me so much that he sent this, his son into this world to die on the cross as the full and satisfying payment for my sin. And to be buried and rise again on the third day so that someone like me and someone like you could put our trust in that salvation. And when we put our trust in that salvation, in an instant to receive everlasting life. Not when we die, but to begin that relationship with God and receive everlasting life at this instant in my history. And then to be able to enjoy it all the way to heaven and then all the way through heaven. John wrote and he said, and this is the testimony that God has given us eternal life. And this life is in his son. He who has the son has life. And who does not have the son does not have life. You can do that this morning. We'll talk about it later. Notice in verse 2 that the father has given Jesus authority over all flesh. That is over all mankind. This means that. Jesus' authority in the world uh, included giving eternal life to as many as the Father has given to him. I don't know about you, but if I was reading through the Bible, I'd look at that and say, all right, Jesus has all authority related to salvation, authority to save all who the Father gives to him to be saved. Now, some issues in life, I'm, I'm a, a glass is half full person. But in other issues in life, I'm a glass is half empty person. And I would think to myself, well, I wonder if I can be saved. Because how do I know if the Father has given me to Jesus in order to be saved? Some of us complicate very simple things. How do I know that I've been chosen by God to be saved? And the solution is very, very simple. Choose God, and then you'll know that he's chosen you. I could, I could talk for two hours on that subject and hurt my own head on it. But it's as simple as that. You choose him this morning, 
And then you'll have a great revelation in addition to having done that. You'll discover that he has chosen you from before the foundations of the earth. It's in your court. Whosoever, Jesus said in John 3.16, can be saved. Peter wrote in his second epistle and he said that God isn't willing that any should perish, but that all would come to repentance. God's will for your life is that you would be saved. That's his desire. His will is that every man, woman, and child would join him in heaven. Now, I have to couple my will to his will to make it so, because he won't force us to go there. Now, notice, and I think it's important to understand that the greatest way for us to bring glory to the Father is by trusting in Jesus as our Savior. Not good works. Not religious activity or self-sacrifice, none of those things. The greatest way that I have to honor the Father is by trusting in His Son, who He sent from His right hand into this world in order to provide us with salvation. John wrote and he said in John chapter 8, A group of people came to Jesus and said, what shall we do that we may do the works of God? They wanted to please God. And Jesus answered and said to them, this is the work of God. They had their pads out ready for a very long list. That you would believe on him whom he has sent. By putting our faith in Christ. Say, what's the greatest thing I could do for my creator? The greatest thing that I could do to bless his heart that would be to put your faith in his son for salvation this morning now notice finally in verse 5 and it's a to me a a very very deep passage Um, I think as we all read the gospels and we read about Jesus' life there's different things that impact us in different ways I'm always greatly impacted by Jesus' cry upon the cross, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And then right behind that is John chapter 17, verse 5, where Jesus said, And now, O Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. Here's our Savior praying, and he prays to the Father, expressing his longing to return to his formal, eternal glory. The glory that he enjoyed prior to his incarnation, his coming into this world to provide us with salvation. He looks forward to a return to that former glory. Before Jesus came into the world, we may just take it for granted, but I mean it's good to think about every once in a while. He dwelt in heaven. He came from heaven. He laid aside his glory. Think about that. He laid aside his eternal glory for someone like me to be saved. Someone like you to be saved. 
And now as he's been here 33 and a half years, and as the cross is before him, he desires to wear that glory once again. When he came into this world, he never laid aside his deity, but he did lay aside his glory. John chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, speaking of Jesus. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. And He was in the beginning with God. And all things were made through Him. And without Him nothing was made that was made. And then verse 14 of that same chapter, John writes, And the Word, that is Jesus, became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. John, beginning his whole gospel, awed by who and what Jesus was in His eternal glory and what He was willing to lay aside in order to come into this world to save us. And Jesus looks at this point in time now as he's praying beyond the horror of the cross that's going to occur the next day, and he looks to the joy of heaven on the other side of it. The writer of the book of Hebrews spoke of this, telling us, looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him, this joy of once again his glory being restored to him in its fullness, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. I've never seen heaven. And I long for it. Imagine having been there for eternity past and living here. How much more you would long to return to it. I think that sometimes we can talk about Jesus' incarnation and, and so often these words, they just become like words in kind of a systematic theology. And that, yes, he became man, he came into the world and, and all of these things. And all of that is important on some level. But if it's, we only deal with it academically or in our mind rather than in our hearts, it's, it, it, then we're falling far short of what God wants to experience in it. Earth is all that we have ever known. There's no humbling on my part to live on this earth. We didn't leave the glory of heaven to then come here to this earth. And yet even we groan, the Bible says, do you groan in this world? I groan in this world in my spirit. I don't read the news on the Internet except that my spirit groans. I would say somewhere between one and two out of five phone calls in my life produce a groaning in my spirit. The constant contact with the fallenness of this world, the sin of this world, the violence, the war, the wickedness of this world, the disease of this world, the death of this world. We groan. 
The Apostle Paul groaned. And we haven't even been to heaven. He said to the, wrote to the Romans and he said in chapter 8, For we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs until now. And not only they, but we also who have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, eagerly waiting for the adoption, the redemption of our body to be able to go to heaven. But then he also wrote, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. For the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God, for the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope, because the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. He groaned in his spirit over his experience in this fallen world because God lives inside of us. And yet there is with that groaning the recognition that it speaks of the fact that this is no longer our home. But that our hearts have been planted in the heaven that we are headed to. And so we long for heaven like Paul The glory of heaven, the peace of heaven. Imagine the peace of heaven. Never another problem, never another worry in life. We long for the safety of heaven, the joy of heaven, the righteousness of heaven. We think about what is in us as we think about heaven. Imagine how he must have groaned. As Jesus came into contact, not only with this fallen world, but with what he was going to face on the following day. In writing his letter to the church at Philippi, the Apostle Paul not only marveled concerning Jesus' death upon the cross. He marveled in that. But he marveled in even the willingness that Jesus possessed and being willing to come into this fallen, sin-filled world to begin with. And I marvel at it as well. He wrote in Philippians chapter 2, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a servant and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. He marveled at Jesus' willingness to die upon the cross, but as well he marveled at his willingness to introduce himself into human history In this way, so that we might be saved. And I marvel at it as well. What a Savior that we have. What love He has for us. And as Jesus prayed here in this prayer, prayed for that glory to once again be His, it happened. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1. God, who at various times and in different ways spoke in times past 
to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things through whom he made the worlds, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person, and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. And right now, he has that glory. And one day we will see it. And we will go to that very same heaven to be with him. And how wonderful heaven will be. Let's stand together and we'll pray.